Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. Today on the pod, we have Paul Pastor with us. Paul is an acquisitions editor for Zondervan. He is the author of several books, including Bower Lodge Poems and the Devotional Guides, The Listening Day, Volumes 1 and 2, which are some of my favorite devotional guides. I go back to them time and time again. He lives with his family in Portland. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Courtney. It's a joy to be here talking about two of my favorite things, birds and hope. Woo! It is a good it is a good crossover, isn't it? It's a or is it a mashup? What are we doing here? Yeah, a pastiche. Let's call it a pastiche. <laughs> there you go. We're going to elevate it. I like it. So, Paul, where are you finding hope these days? You're up there in Portland, and you've got a couple young kids, and you're working for Zondervan, and you're writing poetry, and the world is on fire. Where are you finding hope? (laughs) Oh, the world is on fire, uh, and yet it's sort of the human part of the world that feels that it's on fire most of the time. Um, I'm finding hope in the woods. We're privileged to live in in a pretty rural area. Our home backs up to massive state park. Um... You know, the Pacific Crest Trail runs not too far away. And so it strikes me sometimes, you know, I could pull on a coat, walk out my back door, and without really crossing pavement much at all, go to either Canada or Mexico. And that is such a beautiful thought. I could just go. I just walk out the door and go and be in the deep woods. And I think it's that sense of connection to to wildness and to, you know, the beauty of the natural world, that reminder that even though our days might be filled with screens and Zoom calls and business and work and all of the harrying uh, jobs that it requires to just like live in our contemporary society, at the end of the day, we're still made and able to go out and reconnect with uh, what we really are. And we tend to find that among the rocks and the stones and the creatures of the woods. What are we really? We're wild things. Yeah. We're wild things Mm. meant to bear witness and to sing of um, this place in which we find ourselves. That's, that's the creator's call to us. It's his call to everything, but humans are uniquely able to unite this sort of life of, of the dust and of the earth and of just the, um, the, the physical things with the life of breath and of spirit and of song. And I think that, you know, the image of the bird is, is actually really beautiful for an image of our own spirits and our own souls. I think that's part of the fascination that we find is the freedom and, and the beauty that's united in these amazing little flickering creatures. Um, but I think that's present in us too. And so, you know, becoming more human in my view tends to be becoming more wild, becoming more able to be comfortable and at home in spaces that our species does not dominate and does not define for us. Mm. 
I so appreciate, I know you're, you're off social media for the, the Lenten season, but I so appreciate your social media presence is sometimes about words and poetry, but just as often it's, have you seen this lichen? It's amazing. <laughs> or this mushroom. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's true. There's just this discipline of attention that I think is beautiful and really, really simple. Kids do it well. Um, the better kind of old people also do it well. Uh, but for those of us who are in kind of the great wilderness between childhood and elderhood, uh, it's so easy to just forget the joy of presence and the joy of being. Um, and we have to learn from things that really don't have any other option, like lichen and fungus and uh, and birds and and you know the natures of water and and stone and all these things. So, yeah, I really come alive in those spaces for sure, and uh, just love nature. So that's where I'm finding hope. Mm. How how do you reconcile your word work, which is largely indoors, computer screen or pen and paper, with your your drive to be outdoors? I don't reconcile it that well, honestly. <laughs> I uh, you know <laughs> I. Um, so my home office is in this converted hot tub enclosure that hangs off the back of our 1930s house. And that sounds kind of nasty. It's actually pretty nice. Like we, you know, built it out and drywalled it. I've got this big, beautiful beam that runs above me and some built-in bookcases. So it's a pretty comfortable space. But the one like non-negotiable when we were putting, we were sort of fixing it up, knowing that I would be working here for, for a long time, possibly all or most of my career, was basically an eight by four foot custom window, a beautiful window of tempered glass. And so when where I sit at my desk, there's actually most of the wall in front of me is is window and it looks right out into the into the forest every day. I see, depending on the season, the you know, tanagers and pileated woodpeckers, hairy woodpeckers, starlings, stellar's jays, ravens. Uh, Cooper's hawks, bald eagles, just kind of all of this, you know, life that is spilling out of the woods behind our home. And that that really helps to be able to sit back from a manuscript or from a meeting and just remember, actually, this is the fake stuff. The real stuff is happening out there. Um, so that proximity makes it makes it really easy, but it is a it is a struggle. It's hard sometimes to reconcile the kind of the work of the artificial or the digital with uh, with the life that I find outdoors. So it's, it's a constant struggle. Screens are by far the hardest part of my job. Um, it, it just is, mm. it's tough to, tough to sit there, tough to engage with it. And there's a certain type of exhaustion that comes with, you know, dealing with digital conversations and digital media that just takes it out of me. I would not be able to it survive. It's a really unique kind of exhaustion. It's unique. Oh, it's, it's soul level. It is a soul sapping exhaustion. And so my big thing is I just never want to become used to that. I never want to feel like that's normal. At the end of the day, I always want to come in and be like, oh, good grief, I'm glad to get off that computer. Uh, the moment that that fades in me is the moment where I probably need to quit because something good has died. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm actively looking for ways to be outdoors more during my my daily work at the office. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor and it's so easy to take all those pastoral care calls at my desk. And I'm like, I don't, no one's forcing me to be at my desk. Like I can walk around the nature preserve. I can walk around at yes, least the I parking lot and, and be outdoors. But it's amazing how easy it gets to just, you know, your, your butt is in the chair and the temptation to become slothful and just sit there when those pastoral care conversations are better when I'm outside. Like I'm more in tune with the person to whom I'm speaking. Yeah. We're, we're made to move. We are made to move. At the end of the day, we are, you know, 
I like to say we're apes with angels inside of us. Like we're, we're, we're a primate that needs to move around and that's just reality. So I love it. Mm. I love that. Well, you mentioned in the, in the litany of birds that you get to see outside your office, your home office window, you mentioned Stellar's Jays. And I know that those are, those are special to you. Tell me about the Stellar's Jay. We don't have those down here. I love their little mohawks. They're just rad looking. They are amazing. Okay. So I'm going to wax, uh, I'm going to wax loquacious about the glories of the Stellar's Jay and then tell you the context, the why of my love for these birds. Um, as your listeners probably know, they're corvids. They're from the raven family. So jays and magpies and ravens and the American crow. There's you know all these different families um, within within kind of that larger extended family of raven-like birds, and they're just so smart. Um, their social organization is remarkable. They can count. They can remember. They can mimic. Uh, there's just something about the Stellar's Jays that is, um, you know, you almost, you almost feel sometimes when you're looking at them that you're watching like the, the Velociraptors from the old Jurassic Park films where it's like they are talking to each other. They have a social language. And the more that I've like read about them, the more amazed I've been. Like they have these extensive rituals of um, working at, as, as groups. Like they will... Um, you know, gather in these bands of like five, sometimes up to like 10 or 12 Jays. Um, they have these complex sentry behaviors. So when they're feeding, they do this like sentry swapping maneuver that always has two or three of them up high watching for danger while others feed on the ground. And they just have this incredible me me mechanics to their relationship. But then like as even mated pairs, there's this, this beauty, you know, they're like the better kinds of poets, they're monogamous and they mate for life. Um, and, you know, they, they mate according to temperament. So they'll spend time with other birds. And, you know, just like people, some of them are more outgoing, some are more shy, and they will tend to select a partner who has characteristics, even emotional and like social characteristics that are close to them. Then when they do that, the, you know, the father tends to stick around, um, very present. They build the nest, you know, the, the mated pair builds the nest together. They feed together. It's just a very interesting social behavior. Uh, they'll even form cross-species friendships. So you'll sometimes see them with other types of birds. And the jays will instigate what's called like a mobbing behavior in the presence of uh, especially raptors like Cooper's hawks, goshawks, like they tend to red-tailed hawks, they tend to really um, prey upon the jays pretty pretty heavily. Uh, but the jays like will actually organize bands of birds, not just jays but other species too, to distract, to harass, and just like drive off these larger predator birds. So all these behaviors are just fascinating to me. They're so social, so different from the human, and yet you see these human characteristics that are incredible. But really the, the thing that has put this love for the Stellar's Jay in my heart um, more than anything else was an experience with you know, this bird that we named Stella. So I'm going to tell you the lore and the legend of Stella just because I think it's the coolest thing ever. So, you know, we've lived in our present home for just under nine years. And the first year or two here, we noticed on the side of the of the house kind of tucked into this 
uh, like clematis vine, a really unique nest made of mud and made of sticks. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but it's a Stellar's Jay nest. They're, they're one of the only uh, corvids, I believe, that use mud in the building of their nest, but they make these incredible little like strong clay cups basically mixed with other stuff and they line it with grass and with animal hair and kind of anything that they can find to make this hyper cozy little thing. So anyway, this nest was in the side of the house and um, the following spring after I noticed it, uh, I saw, you know, this flash of blue and black, um, classic Stellar's J movement up there. Uh, and I was really concerned because like it had been built in the most high traffic zone of like our entire house. Like <laughs> here we are, it's near the area where we park our cars. We're in and out the front door all the time, you know. 10 feet maximum from the front door and kids running in and out, screen door slamming, boots being thrown up under the, you know, the kind of the covering of the porch, just all of the chaos of the front yard was right there. And I was like, you stupid bird, why would you ever build your home here? So anyway, I was, I was concerned, but I wasn't going to move her. Like by the time I noticed it, she already had eggs in there. And you could see where the nest was built kind of through our bedroom window. So I'd spend a lot of time just sitting there and watching and knowing that they tended to, you know, couple up to make these mated pairs. I was surprised to see that there wasn't a dad in the picture. Something had happened to dad. He was not around. And so she was spending a lot of time on the eggs. She's got to keep them warm, but she also had to feed. And so it was kind of this dilemma of like, huh, I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but basically like she needs a partner and she obviously does not have that right now. So eventually after a few days, I did like what you're not supposed to do with wild things. And I got involved, um, went out, took a shovel, turned over a spade of earth, picked out a couple fat earthworms and very cautiously went up. Um, held it over the nest, and she just greedily wolfed it down straight from my hand. Uh, and that began sort of this ritual of feeding that I would do several times a day of just going out and feeding Stella. She was not shy in the least. She seemed happy and grateful, definitely watchful, but just gobbled it all down. And so eventually I got to where, you know, when I was feeding her, I would do this simple little whistle. Um, as I was feeding her, like just knowing, Hey, she's smart. She can count. She can mimic. Maybe we can establish a little, a little call together, a little protocol here. <whistles> so, you know, weeks passed, um, two or three weeks passed and several times a day I was out there and eventually she got to the point where she was mimicking that call and we were able to sort of have our little ritual of feeding and whistling and all that. So, um, you know, hand fed her those worms while on the nest. And then, of course, the day came where I saw she was up and off the eggs, flying like mad. We know the habit, like going and finding food, coming back. And I knew, oh, they must have hatched. So I went and sure enough, there were four little blind chicks rolling around in the bottom of the nest. Uh, as some days passed, eventually it got to the point where... Um, I was like, you know, in the natural scheme of things, dad and mom would both be bringing food here. I'm going to, I'm, I'm involved already. They already smell like me. I'm, I'm just going to go farther here. 
And so I started to feed the babies um, kind of with Stella's permission. She'd just sit there and watch um, the little earthworms too. And each time, do, do my little call and feed these sweet little birds. So the days passed, the weeks passed. Eventually the day came um, where they first began to fly out of the nest. One flew, you know, in its choppy little way straight down onto my hand. It's just incredible. So anyway, we uh, cutting a long, already long story shorter, um, you know, basically we had this little clutch of chicks that were trained to think that they were half human. They had this little call that we shared. One of them died, something got it. Uh, two of the others left, but one of them, who we named Fluffy, stayed around with Stella. And throughout that year, he would often fly down, he'd talk to us, he'd come onto the porch, come up to the kitchen, you know, right up to the right up to the back door, right up to the window, just like look in at us, like, hey, come on, he'd do a little whistle, just acting like he owned the place, not shy, not skittish. So eventually one day, and we just like, like he was around every day. You look out, you could recognize him. He sort of had this, you know, puffy little shape. That's why we called him Fluffy. Um, just the best little bird. And so Stella was around, Fluffy was around, everything was great. Well, one day Fluffy came down to the porch and he was just really agitated. Like you can, you could tell like, okay, something's wrong. Fluffy is not happy. He's doing these like emergency squawks. Um, he's like coming to the window, hopping around, looking at us. Like it was obvious he was trying to get our attention. So I go out onto the porch and he leads me. I can't, can't say it any other way. He leads me down to the highway, which, you know, isn't that far away from our house. And there by the side of the road, I found Stella who had been hit by a car. And he was just so upset and so like, it was so obvious, like he was looking for someone to help. And he came and um, like communicated around it. So it was just this really, really unique moment. Um, so Stella, of course, uh, at that point was gone, but Fluffy still remained. And then there's sort of one other beat to this story that really cemented um, kind of this bizarre little cross-species friendship. Later that summer, you know, there's this creek outside our house, and I was out there with, with you know, my kids uh, who were playing in the creek. And it's sort of this open area. There's not a lot of tree cover. Um, and so I'm sitting there watching them play in the creek, and all of a sudden I hear the strangest, like, like eagle call that I've ever heard in my life. It's like this thin little... And I'm like looking around because I, you know, I know my birds fairly well. And I'm like, that's an eagle, but that's not an eagle. Like, that's weird. And so finally I look up into the tree and it's fluffy. And he starts like sort of swooping down and like dive bombing us, going back up into the tree and then swooping down. And if you know, like Stellar J calls at all, like it's just super weird. Like this is not the noise that they naturally make. Well, about 30 seconds later, just at treetop height, a bald eagle flies over <laughs> where we're playing. And that's not a big deal for us. Bald eagles don't eat us or our chicks. But for Fluffy and for Fluffy's kind, this is like there's a T-Rex prowling in the area. 
And I realized what he was trying to do. This little guy was warning me with the with his word for eagle, which was an imitation of the call. Hey, stupid human, like your chicks are out in the open and there's an eagle around. Like, get your butt, get your butt under a tree, get your butt inside, like do something. And Courtney, he was he was warning us. He was using his word for eagle to say, hey, get out of here. So, you know, years passed. Um, I don't know what happened to Fluffy. Eventually, we just stopped seeing him. Um, maybe maybe Mr. Eagle caught up. But, you know, that story of Stella and, and, and Fluffy and like this, I don't know, this weird cross-species friendship is, is really part of why I love the species of the Stellar's Jay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's sort of it's sort of amazing in a really simple way to have had that little friendship and have had that little relationship in a way that felt um, somehow reciprocal and mutual. So like be included in mm-hmm. this little bird's grief, to be included in this little bird's fear, to have him watch, uh, watch our back a little bit uh, was, such a, was such a poignant thing. So anyway, that's the story of Stella and Fluffy. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I and I think to your point of you shouldn't get involved, that's almost always true, except sometimes you should get involved. I completely agree. <laughs> and Fluffy might not exist, you know, if you hadn't fed Stella those yeah, you can't exactly starve right. to death on your eggs. Exactly right. Corvids are so fascinating and so smart and so you know, so many, they have kind of a bad rap because they, you know, people think they're, they're troublesome and they're digging in the trash and they're, you know, mobbing other <laughs> birds, but with great power comes great responsibility and they're just so smart. Exactly right. Exactly right. And there's just something about the, the intelligence of the Jay and the, um, yeah, they, they're just out to, out to rule the world. Um, I think there's something that, you know, if we don't like them, it's probably because we see qualities in them that remind them or remind us of who we are, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, greed and acquisitiveness. So and, yeah. yeah. Dangerous curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I love that story. I, I want to point our listeners also toward your, your beautiful books. You're a, you're a poet and you write devotionally as well. And your new book is Bower Lodge Poems. And some of those have a little bit to do with birds. Would you share a poem or two with our listeners? Oh, I'd be happy to. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, Bower Lodge is this very, um, you know, it's very Christian, but it's also like very grounded in the images of the natural world and then the patterns and the rhythms of the natural world. So uh, I'll start by reading uh, a poem called Bird Sap that um, actually, as I'm sitting here, I'm looking at uh, the tree that. I speak of in the poem, an old alder that, um, yeah, has just been a snag for a really long time here and is a home and is a food source for uh, countless creatures around here. So uh, anyway, here's, here's bird sap. Bird sap. The alder's failing now and breaks heavy with the rain. The bark folds like the coat of a man who knows he'll no more need it. About its roots, fungus trumpets reveling already. Orange and red, orange and red. 
in shelves and tears and rondy cups like cauliflower ears. The flicker comes with black upon the throat to eat what plays below the bark. Yellow things, tan things, writhing black heads and bellies that pop. Flailing things, half-made things who have no armor, whose mandibles protest, not yet, not yet. And in the flicker's craw, the flesh of grubs is taken, loved, and made into a paste. This rises like dough, is ground, digested. It is clarified like butter. When whole and pure, it flows into the genitals and is poured into a little shell. So it is no coincidence that egg yolks shine like suns, for bird sap is the summer light from years ago, when the alder was ferocious and impregnable. When it stood against the coming of the winter, every leaf attentive to its light. Before the fungus, red and orange, red and orange, and before the flicker, with the black throat and the multiform infinite call. I wonder, when the alder slurped the earth, did it dream it would become a yellow glow suspended in an egg? It's beautiful. The, the cover of your book, too, says so much. I know authors don't have the, the whole decision-making process in their hands when it comes to book covers, but I, mm. I so love them on the cover of your book and the, the way that it speaks to what's inside the pages of this. Mm. Curious oh, thank and, you. Yeah, making the art was actually a really meaningful process. You know, a really dear friend, Jacob Cowden, um, you know, did a series of uh, illustrations for the book, which readers can find, including uh, a really wonderful um, illustration of uh, a hawk in there, um, sort of this doubled hawk. But, we, but here's what we did, like even to carve that, that image that's on the front, we projected Jacob's art onto these massive lino boards. So, you know, about two feet high. And we spent um, a long time with, you know, whiskey and heavy metal carving into the board, uh, these block prints. So where that image comes from is actually, you know, an inked block print that's about poster size, all carved by hand. So we took this digital image, and then we projected mm. it and we carved it by hand so that the imperfections and the flaws of kind of our human ability to you know, push a very sharp knife through linoleum uh, would be reflected in that final image, and so that would have something that was physical and and, and grounded for that. Yeah. Do you have another for us? Sure, I would be happy to. Um, this one's called the Ash Breeze. Um, uh, you know, the Western Tanager is another favorite bird. They're just so gorgeously colorful, and you know, you're in California. We're in Oregon. Here in Oregon, everything is gray, green, or brown. And there's very little distinction <laughs> between that. And so when you see the tanagers return, um, they're yellow and they're red. They're these explosions of color that are just unmissable. 
uh, as they as they move through the woods. And so this is uh, you know sort of sparked by that that image of brightness among the dullness of um, of the visual landscape. It's called the Ash Breeze. Um, more on that title perhaps afterwards. The Ash Breeze. Tanagers are pairing in the hazel stand to twitch on errands to the fur line, then to alders who wet their feet along the windy lake. The males are bright as dahlias. Their mates are brown and dusky like fir cones if fir cones grew black eyes and fell upwards. It is a peaceable truce I've found with myself watching tanagers pairing in the hazel stand. A moment to rest in these doldrums on the life map. When, be calmed, the worst word for a windless agitation, you and I bend at our oars. Time to ride, you say, the ash breeze. And here we are again, I guess, within the blue horizon where water falls to sky, where no wind moves save that for which we pull. This is the latitude of sloshing prayers, where horses panic in the hold and dream of drowning in the sunken stables, where skeletons prance free of heavy skins to graze among the coral. Oars are wings now, I say, back from my daydream of tanagers, back where I cannot tell if we are moving as we bob and pull against the world's salt tears, as hoofbeats ring on boards below, as we learn no sailor knows his weight until he's had to row it. How can you tell when a poem is finished? Because yours end exactly where they should end. But I'm not a poet. I don't know how you get to the end of a poem and just know that's the end. Is that a, a revision process of, mm. no, no, cut out the last four lines? Because both of the poems you shared with us end exactly where they need to end. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, the the great challenge, I think, of any artist is knowing when when something is done. And I think the greatest gift that one can have is a clear sense of what one is trying to say. And then when that has been said, um, asking, you know, and this also is creativity, asking again and again and again, can I say it more simply? Can I say it more beautifully? Can I say it more directly? Until you, uh, you know, the image I use is winning the chess game with as few moves as possible. That's, that's really the goal of an art like poetry is, is a sense of distilled language where you've taken a sentiment that perhaps could be explained in an essay or in a story, but you've distilled it to absolutely the minimum number of images and words, and yet it's still effective. It's still beautiful. It's still potent. So, uh, yeah, you know, the revision mm -hmm. process is really important, but I think it's that initial vision of you know, I am discovering in every, in everything I write, what it is I'm trying to say, but I also know I, I want to do something for you. I want to do something for the reader. I am actually a little bit mm -hmm. like speaking to Fluffy, like Fluffy the bird. Uh, 
we're sharing something. There's a third thing we're talking about. There's there's food. There's mm. a worm. There's an eagle. There's you know, Fluffy's poor mama Stella down by the highway. There's there's this third thing that we're looking at. And so, when I when I say, you know, it's not just about self expression. When I say something, it's it's intended to draw our common attention to that third thing. And so, it's that definition I think of. Mm success in the piece that makes it easy to know when that has been achieved. Mm. I remember first encountering that idea of the third thing with the essays between um, the poet Donald Hall and Jane Kenyon and how the success of their marriage, they're both poets, they're both brilliant, they're both, you know, done very well in their field, but the success of their marriage depended upon a third thing. It wasn't just mm. staring at each other. <laughs> and and their third thing was, you know, you're expecting something very, very, you know, heavy or very educational or very deep. And their third thing was ping pong. They I had, love it. They yeah. had a ping pong table and that was how, that was how they found each other. That was how they found themselves it. in the midst of all the words. And I, I think about that all the time. Sometimes mm. Daryl and I, my husband, Daryl, we're like, we, we, need, we need ping pong. Ping pong isn't our thing, but what is our third thing that kind of drives us forward together? Mm. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I think that, that process of translation, translating the inner language in a way that can be spoken and understood by those who, who don't have your interior reality, that's the beauty of poetry. That's the beauty of really any type of art or creativity is, yeah, it, it's unitive. It's, it's bringing two unlike things together. So Paul, let's let's bring it back around to that full circle. You talked about finding hope in the natural world and and we've gone through the world of poetry and the story of Stella. What else is giving you hope these days? Hmm. You know, a couple of different things. One, and this is really simple, is um you know, church, believe it or not. The the greatness, you know, we're we've been Anglican for a really long time and um the joy of being part of a liturgical tradition or, you know, a, a tradition that's really deeply grounded in the creeds is that um, you are gifted with a holy boredom over the course of years. Uh, you're brought into a place where you are faced with words that are not your own, sometimes feelings that are not your own, rhythms, um, a life that is larger than your own. And you're invited to adapt your interior reality to this shared and common work of the liturgy. And it is so beautiful. Um, you know, about 12 years we've been in these rhythms of the year and the rhythms of, you know, the Eucharist. And um, there's so much hope that for us is being found there. And it's, you know, we attend this really beautiful small church in North Portland. It's small, it's funky, it's weird, it's awkward, it's lovely. But the friendships that are arising in that context are just something that's that's really beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I would say friendships and the liturgy is 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 really grounding grounding me right now. And then additionally, there's a sense in which I think we're all longing to be living lives that are useful and beautiful and good. And, um, you know, in our culture, work tends to uh, be used for like the income that we make or, you know, how we spend a majority of our prime work week or whatever. 
But there is a sense of work right now that also is is feeling really right for me. A lot of rightness around how I'm able to um, express myself in my art, the friendships that are arising around creativity. Um, and there's a certain amount of hope there. There's like a goodness and a rightness and in the best of ways there's an ease that arises where it feels like you've slipped into your spot in the scheme of things and it takes time to find that it takes time to dial that in uh, especially in our contemporary culture which is so poised to exploit and to consume it's hard uh, and so when you get a taste of that it is hopeful and it is good and it is like hmm, the memory a memory of a place you've never been, but but you've always longed for, sort of awakens and arises within you. So I'm also finding hope in that sense of like, you know, in the small ways that, that I try to contribute to the life of others or the life of the church or the life of our broader culture, there's a sense of that, of traction there and there's a sense of goodness there. And, and that's something that I would hope for, for, for all of us in our way. But I'll just bear witness that it's really it's really fun when you feel a little bit of that pop into place. So yeah, I feel like that's not a very deft answer, but um, it's it's honest at least. Uh, we're finding finding hope at church, finding hope in friendships, and in in small and often exhausting ways, finding hope in my work. Hmm. Did you, so you're, you're new to the Anglican church. What, what faith tradition did you grow up in? Yeah. Yeah. We've been Anglican, like I said, for about 12 years. Um, I was not personally born into a Christian house at all. It was grade school before mm-hmm. our family came to faith in a pretty, you know, kind of dramatic way. Um, and that was in the Foursquare tradition. So a more Pentecostal tradition. Mm-hmm. So yeah, went from, you know, really, sort of a spiritual but not religious family. Like, you know, my dad sort of practiced Zen Buddhism. My mom practiced Transcendental Meditation. Um, and then moved from that into, yeah, a a Pentecostal expression of Christianity in the coast range of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Stories to be mined there for sure. Stories to be mined there for sure. Yeah, it was, <laughs> It was a beautiful, messy, joyful disaster, and I'm grateful for every bit of it. (laughs) It's interesting. About half of my guests on the podcast are people of faith, and the other half are, you know, people who consider themselves atheist or agnostic, or maybe they are people of faith, but they don't want to talk about their faith on the show, which is completely fine. Um, But a lot of the folks who who consider themselves part of the part of the Christian tradition will say they're finding hope in church and then kind of apologize for it. Like we Mm. all know all of the problems with the church right now and we feel like we shouldn't (laughs) be able to say that, but it's, Mm. it's such a beautiful piece of the story that like the story goes on and God is weaving these Mm. beautiful threads together despite all of the missteps and mistakes and Twitter battles. And, you know, we are, we are doing our best to mess it up and God is like, I'm I'm still going to weave a beautiful thing with all of these threads, despite yeah. all of you. Yeah, you know, my personal perspective is that the things that people hate most about church aren't really church. They're the baggage that we bring in, mm. largely from our culture and from our own imperfections. Um, you know, it's it's like not liking 
family. Like, sure, individual families have colossal issues. Those need to be owned. Those need to be dealt with. But family itself is a strong concept. That's a potent, eternal tradition. And that's one of the joys of, you know, of, you know, our, you know, personal expression of, you know, a more Anglo-Catholic expression of faith is um, we're part of that family. We, we look to this incredible community of men and women who have lived before us and, and done it well, totally imperfect, but have done really well. And we can say, hey, we can learn from them. We can be in community with them. Mm-hmm. We can join them. And that's exciting. I can give my life to that type of vision. Uh, and it's so much bigger and better than Twitter. Praise God for that. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in a in an evangelical tradition and learned the Bible very, very well, but they weren't big on church tradition, the great tradition, connecting us to all these threads that have been woven for thousands of years. And it was so healing for me when in young adulthood I started learning and recovering this, this idea that there were faithful people between the Apostle Paul and Billy Graham, like lots of them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I love it. This, the story precedes us and the story will go on after us. And we, you know, our, our calling and, our, and our, our gift is to be invited to do our piece mm. of it as well as we can. It's really well said. And, you know, so much of the story of contemporary life uh, is resisting the alienation that is present in the modern way of doing things. Alienation from the self, alienation from others, alienation from the earth, from nature, alienation from things of the soul. Um, You know, the 20th century was a wasteland. T.S. Eliot named his poem really well. It was a wilderness where roots dried up. We lost so much uh, during that during that really disastrous century of uh, so-called progress. We really regressed as humans, um, forgetting ourselves mm-hmm. and forgetting what it is we're meant to do. And I think that's probably part of the reason that um, you know a podcast like this is so powerful because there is hope in watching the birds. There is hope in remembering these unspoken, beautiful lives that cannot be commodified or exploited with, you know, any sense of integrity, but, you know, pressing ourselves against kind of the lens of the bird is is beautiful and it's exciting. And it reminds us of a better way to be and a better way to live than that which we've been given. And it's the same with anything that's truly alive and larger than ourselves. The great tradition of um, really any spirituality, but particularly Christian spirituality, it gives more than it takes. You know, engagement with nature Mm -hmm. gives more than it takes. Engagement with the arts, it gives more than it takes. And in a world of, the only words for it are consumption and exploitation where we are being used constantly or evaluated for our use, evaluated for our value, uh, that is an unspoken message that is just pure hope, <laughs> pure hope that there is gift. That at the end of the day, creation is gift. Human life is gift. We can become gift. Um, I love that. Mm. I just love it. I don't think I can close with anything more profound than that. 
Thank you, Paul. Thank you for your words and your wisdom and your poetry. I will link to your your books in the show notes as well as your social media so people can find you. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with today as we close? Oh, I don't think so. Just the just the encouragement that like the work of the human soul, I think is to become wild again, to become free again. And mm. that's good. You know, the Christian tradition has profound language around that, but also just watch the birds, like learn from the birds. Um, it's no accident that when Jesus, that greatest of teachers was walking on the earth, he was constantly pointing to nature and he loved, 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 loved the birds. Um, so if mm. you're feeling in need of uh, a little jolt of inspiration, go read the gospels on the birds. Just follow that. Begin with the sparrows and go all the way through. Um, you'll, you'll see beautiful things. Preach it. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Your soul. Yes, it does.